The Word of the Lord through Jeremiah the Prophet. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And our sermon text from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, Day by day, those who are being saved. Amen. Our ongoing study of membership in the church brings us today to the means of grace as they were first practiced in the New Testament church. Newly filled with the Holy Spirit, Alive with a vital testimony of Jesus Christ, the apostles, who at this point are still very young men, not much beyond boyhood, the apostles are preaching Jesus and the cross to thousands gathered at the temple for Pentecost. They preach with a boldness that renders them almost unrecognizable. And people were asking, could these really be the same lads who followed Jesus the Nazarene as disciples these past few years? The ones who, from what we heard, cut and ran at the first whiff of danger that night in the garden. The ones who denied him when pressed by strangers and servant girls to give an account of themselves. The ones who essentially disappeared behind locked doors somewhere for the past few weeks. Well, as a matter of fact, they are the very same ones. But they're clothed now with the promised power from on high. Two weeks ago, when we considered our duty of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we read the earlier part of this chapter and saw what presence of mind the sending of the Holy Spirit brought to Peter. 
just 40 days earlier, this young man was so unsure of everything. Here he is, a young man, all of maybe 21, 22 years old, married with a fishing business of his own to manage, and now on top of everything else, obligated to care for these 10 or 11 lost boys. Things seemed to be turning out so badly, so unlike what they'd been expecting of the Christ and his kingdom. And now the spirits come. Just as Jesus said he'd come, empowering the preaching of the apostles, piercing the hearts of the guilty who now welcome his word. They find water nearby because they're in the temple courtyards where washings of one kind or another are always going on, and some 3,000 souls, men, women, children, are baptized and added to their number that first day. Now here's the point. These 3,000 souls and all those added to their number day by day as they're being saved, these people didn't return home, quite the same people who first arrived in Jerusalem, for the feast. They're new men, new women, new boys and new girls. They're giving themselves to new things, new habits, a new way of life. We can imagine what sorts of things they gave themselves to before they came, before they believed in Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Messiah. We can imagine because we gave ourselves to similar things before we believed. There was our work and our schooling or our children's schooling, our homes, our shops, our fields, our livestock, trying to stay on top of everything, trying to get the children well-raised and well-married, trying to pay our bills on time, never mind getting ahead. Getting ahead isn't just going to happen, not if you're a Jew on the eastern fringes of the Roman Empire. There's all the social grousing going on every day about imperial politics. And this is life. This is life as we know it, week after week, year after year, generation after generation. And every year, the joints stiffen up a little more. And you forget a little more often where you left your keys. And you lose another friend or two or three with every passing year. This was life as they once knew it. The life that many or most of them brought with them to Jerusalem, that Pentecost. And now they hear young Peter preaching at the temple. Now they hear of a promise made from heaven to us and to our children. They hear of a way out. A way of escape from this perverse generation, this daily grind downward, downward toward the grave. The one word they hear that's going to color everything else they do from that moment onward. It's the gospel. Eventually, of course, many of them are going to return home from their respective pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And so the gospel would take root in homes and towns here and there all across the diaspora, the dispersion. 
But some stayed in Jerusalem because they lived there. Others stayed for a while anyway because the gospel had so altered their lives and habits. What did they do in those earliest days while they stayed together? Luke tells us they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These four things. Now, classical Reformed theology identifies the means of grace mentioned earlier as the word, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the practical means Christ gave us by which believers of any age grow into the likeness of our Savior. Our covenant of communicant membership is slightly more comprehensive when it asks us to the end that we may grow in the Christian life, whether we promise to diligently read the Bible, engage in private prayer, keep the Lord's Day, regularly attend the worship services, observe the appointed sacraments, and give to the Lord's work as he shall prosper us. The point is that Christians now give ourselves to things vastly different from those things that used to occupy us. We delight in these new things we're doing. We're drawn to them. This new life in the Spirit with these new practices become the grid through which we now sift and examine all the goings-on of life. Now, a couple things are especially worth mentioning here. One is the, the word proskartoruntes in verse 42. Proskartoruntes. It means these new believers didn't just try it out once and then move on to other things. It means they continued on in them. They were devoted to them. It became their new lifestyle. The preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost, after all, isn't all there is to Christianity. It's not the whole story. It was just an invitation to consider a few important things to take the first few steps of faith. What Peter preached is just the front door that's now swung open to the glorious kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized, he said. Believe the promises. That's not the whole magnificent palace of the Christian life. It's the entryway. It's the invitation to come on in. Don't just sit there on the threshold. Come in. Come in, there's some walking around to do in this wonderful new world of faith in Christ. Some stretching of the spiritual legs in this glorious body of apostolic doctrine. I mean, after all, look at the size of this Bible. It's going to take some time. 20 or 30 or 40 years or more. Until the Lord calls us home. We who are believers continue in it. We are devoted to it. And the same is true for fellowship. Life in Christ is not, as a rule, a calling to be hermits. 
We seek one another out for the sheer enjoyment of it, because when I'm with you, I ought to detect something of the fragrance of Christ. I ought to hear something of him in your voice, in your good counsel. I hope you hear to some degree the same from me. This isn't just schmaltzy sentimentality. This is what Christ actually designed his body, the church, to be. A brotherhood, a sisterhood, beautiful and winsome, and in most cases, absolutely necessary. Now I realize there are providential situations when we live more as hermits than we would probably like. I have four sisters, and two of them happen to be widows. I stay in touch with them as much as I can, and I always rejoice when I hear some new social contact in their lives, some new friendship that shows promise of bringing the light and joy and color back into their lives. Most of all, I rejoice when that friendship draws for them a portrait, however sketchy it may be, however imperfect, of the friend who sticks closer than a brother. The earliest church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread together. Now what does this mean? Yes, of course, they ate, they ate together, but I think this means more than salad and casseroles. The church has homes for salad and casseroles. The church celebrated, and frequently, the Lord's Supper together. This is the breaking of bread to which they were so devoted. There in Troas, late in his third missionary journey, Paul preached to the assembled church all the way to midnight, and then broke bread, literally tasted bread, before talking with them some more till daybreak. The church loves to be together and loves to remember together the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. The church devotes itself also to prayer. Literally, it says they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers. There were identifiable prayers that were known because they were taught. We have some of them today. Maybe we should have more. The Anglican Book of Common Prayers has some written prayers that are worthy of our memorization and use. I'm not Anglican, probably not very liturgical in the eyes of many, but I know our prayers should have substance. They shouldn't be repetitious. They should be thought through. They must come from the heart and yet be screened through the grid of an active, spirit-filled mind as well. To pray well takes some devotion, beloved. It takes some practice. We do well to continue in prayer together. These are means of grace. Means of grace. That is, they're the means to our growth in grace. But I want to call your attention to the other function they serve. It's not all about us. Luke writes of the effect these growing evidences of the Spirit had on 
others. The people round about, the apostles were going about with the work the Lord gave them to do. The new believers were going about the work of growing in grace. And it says fear was to every soul. Everyone thought it was awesome. Everyone. It's awesome. See how they love one another. These people who belong to the way, these Christians, they're not going down to the local arena for the daily show and the government handout of bread. That was Roman policy for keeping these outlying provinces in line, you know. Entertain them and give them things. But look at these Christians. They've got better things to do with their time. And they seem to have this poverty problem sorted out without anyone's being put out of joint by it. It's not putting anyone out of joint simply because everyone's doing just what he or she wants to do. Giving what he or she wants to give. Taking only what he or she needs. It's all working. It's all working. And there's no government program, no subsidy behind it all. And they're praising God for it all, the whole arrangement. This is awesome. These godly practices we know as means of grace do indeed build us up into the likeness of Christ. He diligently read the Bible. He spent whole nights in private prayer. Lord of the Sabbath, he kept the Sabbath as it was meant to be kept. He diligently attended the worship services. It was there he announced in the terms of Isaiah what it was he came to do. And he gave everything he had, of course, to the Lord's work, because it was his work. When he'd done it, it was done. And he said, it is finished. So to give ourselves to these practices is just to follow in his footsteps. But don't lose sight of the greater picture. The family and friends who constitute our little circles of influence are watching what this Christianity business is making of you. Maybe they're not looking very closely, or maybe they're looking more closely than you think. Your life doesn't tell the whole story of Christianity, but it does tell one little piece of it. Your life is one little letter in the whole story of the gospel. Take all these little letters of all these little lives lived together for the glory of God and in the might and power of the Holy Spirit. Take them all together, and what sort of a story is being told. Here's what was happening in Jerusalem that late spring, not quite 20 centuries ago. The church was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen.